the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Over the line, or closing, he's in. A backhander and a save by Tony Esposito. Stan Mikita was a, a small guy, very cocky in those days. A right hand by Magnuson, and he puts that guy down. Magnuson trying to tear his hair out. NBC Chicago's James Naveau. Murphy picked out of it. Six seventy, the scores. Hockey guy Jay Zawaski. Hawks win! Hawks win again! Chris Jelios in overtime. Part of Blue Wire Podcasts. Team off the boards. He shoots. He's going down to the tape. A game-winning goal. The Hawks live to fight another day. Rolling back, circle and drive. Skipped it from The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Chicago's going to be in last place forever. Triple Threat Sports, Fry the Coop, and by the Sins In-Law Group, let's drop the puck. Welcome in, everybody. This is a special edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. My name is James Naveau. Jay Zawaski, normally with me, isn't tonight. He's doing some softball dad-type things. He's recording the 100th episode of the I'm Fat Podcast. Congratulations to him on that. Uh, I'm, by court order, not allowed to host a podcast by myself, so I decided that tonight (laughs) would be a really good excuse to bring on Laura Saba. She is one of the absolute best people I know. I met her under her online sobriquet, The Active Stick. I'm sure y'all know her as the co-host of the Lockdown Canadians podcast and just all the other goodness that she's kind of sprinkled all over the internet. She is an amazing human being, and I'm excited to welcome her to the show to talk some Stanley Cup final. Laura, how are you doing tonight? How am I supposed to live up to all of the things that you just said? (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. We've been friends for a long time and you are one of the most important friends that I have. And I, I, you know, it's been a while since I've been to Chicago, but I do miss hanging out with you and all my friends. I'm sure some of the listeners have met me or we've interacted online. So hi, everybody. How have you been? (laughs) I've missed you guys. She, she hosts some wonderful uh, gatherings when she comes to Chicago. It is one of her favorite cities, and a lot of people do kind of clamor for her to come back. She's almost like a rock band in that way. Like she's constantly <laughs> getting tweeted, hey, Laura, when are you coming back to Chicago? So how it, does that feel, does being feel a rock like... band? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to say, everybody's always been so generous uh, whenever I visited, you know, with their time and coming to see me and, and hanging out and, and showing me their favorite spots and, and buying me drinks, which is, well, it, it definitely does feel like being a rock star. And I do, I, I, the, I do love back. I love Chicago. I love you guys. And I do hope that I will be able to visit soon. Fingers crossed. Let's get you back here. Let's get you uh, just into town and we can uh, give you some more Malort shots, I suppose. But (laughs) in lieu of that, I think that the first thing we need to do in this interview today as we talk about the Stanley Cup final is get in a time machine. We go back to May 25th. Maple Leafs are up 3-1 in the first round series against the Canadians. I got to know, Laura, would if I had come back and told you that the Canadians would not only win that series, but also end up in the Stanley Cup final, would you have thought I'd have partaken in a little bit too much of the legalized weed here in Illinois? Or do you think there was any remote chance that the Canadians would be at this point where they're at right now? 
I will tell you that I would have been shocked. I would not have believed it myself, even before the Toronto series started. I mean, there w- it wasn't necessary for them to go up 3-1 for us to know that it was going to be a long shot. If I, and, and I completely understand if the listeners weren't paying, to the North, paying attention to the North Division. It wasn't one of the most compelling divisions, I should say. Uh, definitely, I, I think uh, Chicago was a bit luckier on that front. I, uh, you know... If, if you weren't paying attention, you all you would know is that the Toronto Maple Leafs ran away with the division title and uh, they were 18 points clear of the Montreal Canadiens. And Montreal was the 18th ranked team in the league when they squeaked in to the North mm-hmm. Division playoffs. And it was a series. It was a season full of ups and downs. There was a coach firing. There were some slumps, multiple slumps, actually two slumps. Uh, there was <laughs> a, uh, a COVID, uh, COVID, they tested positive, positive for COVID or one person t- tested positive for COVID. Uh, and then a couple of the other guys were in close contact with them, obviously their teammates. So they shut down uh, Montreal for a week. Uh, and uh, I think they went, I think 10 games in between, in, in between, uh, sorry, 10 days in between games. There was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff going on. And then their schedule in the second half of the season after that break was so condensed. They lost so many games. They had so many players uh, get injured. Carey Price was concussed. Brendan Gallagher broke his finger or his thumb or his entire hand. I can't even remember (laughs) uh, because Shea Weber also had a hand injury and he'd been playing injured the whole time. There's a lot going on. And uh, so when Toronto was widely expected to come out of the North Division. But not only that, this was expected to be their chance at a cup. And the first game, the Canadians won. But then they went down 3-1. And they didn't show a whole lot, to be honest, in those three games to show that they were able to hang. But then they turned it around. They were able to adjust throughout the series. They had a little bit of luck. And as you know, because you've watched three cups in, in the last decade, uh, you have to take advantage of your luck. And you have to, you can't just be good. You have to be lucky. And the Canadians were, they took advantage of their luck. They rolled that luck really well, but they earned their spot in the final. And what they were able to do in the playoffs is what people predicted that they were going to do before the season started with all the off season additions that Mark Bergevin made. They thought, you know, this, this team is going to go deep. These, these additions are really good. Uh, and, you know, they're promising. It's a, it's a t- he said it himself. This is a team that's built for the playoffs. And uh, we second-guessed every single decision that he made once the Canadians went into their first slump. We second-guessed the coaches. We second-guessed the players. But to their credit, they figured it out. And the things that we thought that were their weaknesses, they literally took those things and changed them. So during the regular season... Stop me at any point. I'm rambling. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to explain how. During the regular season, uh, there were a couple of critiques of this team. And one of them was that none of the players on there, whether they were trying to generate offense or they were trying to kill a penalty or whether it was defensive coverage, none of the players knew where they were supposed to be and knew what they were supposed to do. They looked lost on the ice. So, you know, that's a lazy person would critique them as not making an effort. That's not what was going on. They didn't know what they were doing. And in, in uh, I, I mean, there's so many things that went wrong that the, their coach tested positive for COVID and is, has been sidelined from the middle of the, the third round. Uh, okay. But obviously, associate coach uh, Luke Richardson was running the bench and uh, credit to the media, the first moment that they had to talk to him after they congratulated him on his first victory as a head coach. He's the interim interim head coach, believe yep. it or not. 
uh, they asked him, what's the difference between the defensive coverage and the penalty kill? And he said that every man, this is paraphrasing, it's not an exact quote, but he said that every man on the team knows what they're supposed to do and is executing it correctly. So whatever failures they had in the regular season, whether it was communication between the coaches, they often said that they didn't have time to implement a system because of the condensed schedule after the coaching change. They had a pretty good system to begin with. Like Cole Julian's system is very strong. They just weren't winning games with it. Uh, And, um, you know, obviously when a new coach comes in, there's a little bit of deconstructing and reconstructing. And that week that they had between the the regular season and puck drop on their first game, uh, obviously because the North division took a little longer because there were multiple COVID shutdowns and and the other divisions finished earlier and got to start their playoffs earlier. Thanks a lot. They had that advantage. (laughs) (laughs) They had that advantage of, uh, of, of, of that week off and they took a lot of time to meet and the coaches met with the players one-on-one, which is something that they weren't able to do during the regular season. But in the playoffs, they've made it a point that, you know, they talk to the defense, they talk to the penalty kill, they do the meeting with the playoff, uh, with the power play, and they talk to each player individually one-on-one. So each player knows what they're supposed to do and each player is doing it. And so you can talk a lot about, you know, Mark Bergevin likes to see, say every guy in that team is playing for the guy next to him. It's not just about that. It's good to like your teammates and your coworkers. The teamwork aspect of it is there. And it's very important. You know, a lot of seasons have been derailed by uh, teams not getting along, by, by players on teams not getting along. So right now, everything's going right. And one of it is like the locker room has gelled really well. But you have to think about it in practical terms when you're coaching a team. Every player needs to know what, they, what they're supposed to do. And they need to have the confidence and the drive to execute it. And they are very, very well. There are so many things that you kind of hit on in that answer that I'm going to eventually <laughs> ask you about. So I can't wait to dig into some of this stuff. Um, I pointed this out to Laura before we started, and our listeners aren't going to actually see us, but I am wearing my Canadian hat and have my Quebec flag proudly displayed behind me in my office. So clearly there's a bit of Canadians homerism that's happening on this show right now. And Laura may not know this, but before the season, Jay and I made a bet on who would win the Scotia North division. He picked the Maple Leafs. I picked the Canadians. (laughs) I was wrong, but I think I've been validated somewhat by the way Montreal has played. So just kind of throwing that out there for our listeners in case you (laughs) need me to uh, bolster my credentials a little bit to discuss this topic. Um, I'm obviously not in the level of Laura, but Hey, you know what? I'm trying real hard here. So let's just, let's get into the biggest thing. I think that most people from the outside of the Canadians orbit would kind of focus on as kind of the driving force behind this playoff success. And that has been the play of Carey Price. Now I have two questions for you about Carey Price and they're going to require you to put on two different hats. The first hat I'm going to need you to put on is critical thinker podcast co-host hat. I want to ask you the question of Carey Price, 2.2, uh, 2.02 goals against average in the postseason so far, uh, just has been playing otherworldly hockey. Help me figure this out. Should I be surprised by this, or is this something that he's kind of always had just kind of in reserve for the big moment like this? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that he has certainly played at, you know, his peak or a multi, he's had multiple peaks, right? Like we've all seen 2014 Carey Price who won the Olympic gold medal and then won the MVP trophy and then won the Vezina and all of that kind of stuff. I think he won four awards plus an Olympic gold medal that year. It was, it was otherworldly. So Carey Price is, 
has always been and will always be a very talented and skilled athletic goaltender. He's put a lot of effort into his craft. He's made a lot of sacrifices. He's got so much talent. He's one of the best in the world. But he's also a player who is on the declining end of his career. He's a little bit older for a hockey player. You know, he's not, he's not old for you and me. But he's, he, sure. he's a couple years younger than us. I know you and I are the same <laughs> age. He's a couple years younger than us. But he's quote unquote old. I think that Carey Price has had inconsistent seasons of late and it is because he has been overworked. And the one thing is, and I, and I know you guys are, are, are Blackhawks fans and I know the whole thing with the blues or whatever, but I have to credit Jake Allen because in the past, Carey Price has played too much during the regular season and has been very inconsistent due to overwork. Mm. Uh, and he is the kind of player who does get up for big games. He is a big game goaltender. He's definitely clutch and clutch is, I feel like clutch is, means also preparation. It doesn't necessarily just mean like clutch is a concept where people have debated, is that a thing or not? I mm -hmm. think it means preparedness. It means readiness. It means taking your skill and using it at the right time, at the perfect time. And so he's always been that way. But the reason that he's had inconsistent seasons is because he was just tired. The Canadians never had even a serviceable backup. And so when you're in a situation where the Canadians were, they were always on a, a bubble team or you know, their, their only hope of making the playoffs was Carey Price. So they would ride the same goalie night in and night out. There have been seasons where he's played back-to-backs multiple times in the regular season, which is unheard of for your starter. And it's always been because whoever they put in there, in that role, in that second uh, backup goaltender role, was not able to win enough games, was not able to give the team a chance. So whether it was him putting pressure on himself or the coaching staff relying on him too much, whether it, either way he was overworked for, especially for his age and for his stage in this career. So Jake Allen this year came in as a one B. A lot of people made fun of the fact that the Canadians were playing, were paying upwards of $15 million to their goaltending. After them, the closest was Vegas at $12 million for both of their goaltenders. And they had Robin Leonard and uh, Mark Andre Fleury, widely known as really good goalies, right? And you're familiar, obviously. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and so he needed rest and recharge. And the bubble last year proved that. You know, we talked a lot about how they relied on him too much. But I think until the bubble happened last year and he was the same old carry price that he was in the past, it lit that light bulb in the organization's minds. And they're like, we need to spend, we, we need to take a chance on this. And I think Mark Bergevin was envisioning something like this happening when he went out and traded for Jake Allen. And he has been the unsung hero because he's not played a single minute in this playoffs, not a yep. single minute, you know, at times he's come off the bus, you know, and when, when, when they tweet like the travel uh, videos uh, from, from the official <laughs> team accounts, he's come off the bu bus and I'm like, Oh yeah, that guy's still here. Yeah. <laughs> but he played when Carey Price was injured, when Carey Price was concussed. He gave the team a chance every night, and he, he gave Carey Price the rest that he needed to perform in this way in this tournament. So, yes, that is my, my answer is that the, he's, not, he's, he's still got his talent. He's aged. He needs recuperation, and sure. that's why he's playing this well now. You did a very good job with the critical thinking observer hats. I'm going to need you to take that off and I need you to put on the unapologetic fan hats and tell me what this has meant to you as a Canadians fan, seeing Carey Price have this moment in the sun and take advantage of it. I, so obviously as Canadians fans and given the season, we've, this entire run has been unexpected. And so 
we were in shock since the moment that Arturi Lekkinen scored that overtime goal in game six against Vegas. It, it actually, we were so in shock that it took my co-host and I, we normally record the recap about five minutes after the game is over. It was an hour and a half later and we were texting each other <laughs> and saying, I, I, I'm not ready yet. I, I need a few more minutes. I need a few more minutes because we were so in shock and we couldn't believe it. And every moment since then that I have thought about this team, the first thing that I've thought about is Carey Price and his chance to get a Stanley Cup. And I've started getting emotional about it. I've literally teared up as a fan because he's one of those players that even when he first made the team, he was so exciting. He was, you know, highly touted. He won the Calder Cup, obviously. Uh, he was the next one. People had already christened him Jesus Price at that point. It was a yeah. long time ago. This was like I remember him. Beat, I think it was a cover story in ESPN the magazine when he was like 21. And it was all about that. It's been so wild watching kind of, I'm again, showing our age, I think here collectively, Laura, but I, <laughs> I remember that you are not exaggerating that uh, kind of feeling and emotion around him. Right. And so as Mark Bergevin has said a lot, like he's also, he's also gotten emotional talking about Carey Price in recent days, because he says it's true. He's like, you know, the three people in Montreal who have the most pressure on them are the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, and the starting goaltender of the Montreal Canadiens. And it's been true. And he has had so much criticism thrown at him throughout his career when he initially underperformed when he was a rookie, all the way through, even when he was good, and all the way through, even this year. We had on our, on our podcast, we said, Carey Price, this is February, right? Every year now, because of his age, he's, he comes out really well in the first month of the season, really strongly, and then he overdoes it. And then the second season, there's always the second month, sorry, there's always a slump. And it's, it's traditional now with Carey Price. So usually it's in <laughs> November. This year it was in February. And so when the team was underperforming, the coach was about to get fired, all of that stuff was going on. We said, Carey Price is a guy who is not good at his job right now. He is not performing well at his job right now, but he's not the problem on this team. He's not the problem. He's not the reason they're in this hole. He's not the reason all of this is happening. And we got criticism and hate for saying, you know, stop criticizing Carey Price gratuitously. It's true. He's, he's, you know, he's a guy who's paid to do a job and right now he's, he's underperforming at it. And that was fair. Like, I think it's fair to say when a guy's not doing his job well. And people would make it so that it's like, oh, you know, he's going to be, he's the anchor on this team forever and all of that. And, and, you know, so as a fan and as a person who tries to be fair, even about their fandom, I think that he's been so unfairly criticized and also unfairly relied upon in the, in the, um, in the Michelle Terrian years, you know, their strategy was literally rely on Carey Price and hope somebody scores a goal. Mm -hmm. And it's just been so gratifying to see this happen to him. He's, he's on the cusp of, and, and I, I was actually just <laughs> peek behind the curtain here. I've recorded multiple podcasts with multiple people today. Uh, and, but you were obviously my favorite. <laughs> and uh, a lot, and uh, <laughs> I, I have said, you know, that, uh, and if, if the Canadians are able to take this to seven games and uh, JD Hernandez of Locked on Ducks actually came up with this and, and I, I agree there's a very distinct possibility that over anybody on Tampa, Carey Price gets the con Smythe if he's able 
to win games against this team. If he, if he makes it hard for them to win, I think it's going to be a team effort. If they do make it hard for Tampa to win, it's going to be obviously a team effort, but Carey Price's play. And it's going to be one of those things. I hope it's not bittersweet where he's won literally every trophy except the Stanley Cup. (laughs) Yeah, that would be the absolute worst. You're absolutely right. But I, I, I do want to throw out a few other potential candidates for that con Smythe. If we're just going to go ahead, throw caution to the wind. Let's just go ahead and dream big here, Laura. Uh, Cole Caulfield. We obviously, we got to talk about the guy. Didn't play the first two games of the postseason. has been lighting the world on fire ever since. I liked him coming into the uh, draft in 2019. I, I never thought obviously the Blackhawks should take him at number three overall. I'm not going to try to get into any revisionist history here with that. But I did like what I saw from him. I didn't see this coming. I didn't see him basically capturing the hockey world's attention like this. To you, if there's one thing you could kind of drill down on and isolate that he's brought to this mix ever since he came into the lineup, what is it about Cole Caulfield that is so darn special? Dynamic offense. I think it's the one thing. And you're right. We didn't expect this either. I mean, we knew he was going to be good. We, we hoped for the best for him. We were huge fans of him in Montreal. He's had, since he got drafted by Montreal, and also he dropped, obviously, to the mid-first uh, mid round because right. he's small. And so, you know, I think one of those things is, as a short person myself, <laughs> I always, I'm always like, it doesn't matter if he's skilled. He's, he's kind of like Debrinket, right? He's like, Thank that you. drafts Debrinket. And, uh, and in, in we, we saw in him a player who had a lot of energy, who had a lot of promise, and who had pure goal-scoring skill. And in the course of the last couple of seasons, he's played two in the NCAA, obviously. He played uh, World Juniors and one for the United States. Um, and he played in Laval for two games and scored three goals, and then they called him up. <laughs> you know, they didn't spend <laughs> a lot of time there. Uh, we thought that he was going to be adding goal goal scoring ability. We thought, all right, the Canadians can play him in the easier minutes. They can play him when you know when the the, the face off is in the offensive zone. They can play him on the power play. But as time has gone on, they've increased his minutes, and he brings energy and dynamic offense. Whether he's playmaking, he's scoring a goal. Sometimes he just passes to himself <laughs> when there's no one there. <laughs> yeah. And he's phenomenal positionally. He's also good at keeping the puck in the zone when they're in the offensive zone. And even though he's not a defensive player, and it was one of the things that he had to work on when the Canadians drafted him. That was something they talked about with him. And even last year when they didn't bring him on and they said, you know, play another year in the NCAA to work on his defensive game. I'm not going to say put him on there on the penalty kill. That's never going to be the case. But he back checks. And mm-hmm. he's very smart positionally in that normally he uses that skill when he's like, you know, darting between players' legs. He, he uses that skill to create offense. But sometimes it's also to prevent a pass between the opponents. It's to prevent a scoring chance. So he does do that. You know, it's not, it's, he's not, he's not a one dimensional player, but I will say don't rely on him for, for offense. You don't need to uh, for defense. You don't need to because he provides so much offense and the team loves him. They love him. I, I say the same things about Alex DeBrincat. He made some really big steps forward, especially this season on the defensive side of things. Just a lethal player in the neutral zone, always willing to pick a guy's pocket and always able to avoid getting hit. I think that's probably a short hockey player kind of thing, and it's a great trait <laughs> to have. The avoiding the bad contact in the middle of the ice. DeBrincat's fantastic at it. 
Cole Caulfield has obviously shown that he's really good at it too. So I love that you made that comparison. And we do, now that we're talking about coaching decisions and bringing him into the mix and giving him more responsibilities, we got to talk about Dominique Ducharme, who has been, as you mentioned earlier, out of the mix, uh, tested positive for COVID-19, not expected back until game three of the Stanley Cup final. What has been the key to the Canadians succeeding even without him behind the bench and I guess in a bigger picture sense what have you thought about the job that he's done as this team's interim head coach when Toronto was up 3-1 we recorded an episode after they lost game four on our podcast and we said maybe this is a good thing because it'll bring about change and you never root for somebody to get fired but coaches are hired to be fired and the Dominique Ducharme and possibly the Mark Bergevin experiment in Montreal had failed. And that's what we thought, but he has proven himself to be versatile, which we didn't think he was able to do. And it turns out this whole time, we talked a little bit about it earlier in the episode, he did have a system. He did have a game plan and he did have strategies. It's just that they weren't able to practice or implement or really absorb them until they had a chance to do those, you know, so many meetings in that week. And I think that as a, as a coach, he's very different than Claude Julien. He's, he seems reserved. He seems kind of also grumpy to be there. I don't know if it's his demeanor (laughs) or his gruff voice, Uh, but he along with Luke Richardson and Alex Burroughs, believe it or not, of all people, <laughs> you guys are probably familiar with Alex Burroughs um, and, and uh, Sean Burke, who we won't get into because, you know, he's got that, he's got that checkered past, uh, but apparently has been doing well with the goaltending. Uh, they have all learned what each player's strengths and weaknesses are. And they have very carefully like a Tetris game, played them together or in situations to match those skills and to shelter those weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've been, they've been so good at that. They've been so good at situations and adjustments. And I will credit Dominique Ducharme's ability to adjust and communicate with his players. Two things that I thought he did not have Mm -hmm. uh, with how far they've come. And his communication is very clear in that Luke Richardson who has been running the bench since he's the, he's, the, he's usually the defensive coach. Uh, he's been running the bench since, uh, since Dominique Ducharme was sidelined. It's been seamless. The Canadians are doing the same things that they were doing under Dominique Ducharme. They're doing the same things well, and they're able to hide their weaknesses in the same way. So that message and that strategy must be really strong and that communication must be really good. All right, got to ask you for your hot take opinion here. Who's behind the bench uh, game one next season? Is it Ducharme or is it Luke Richardson? Oh, it's got to be Ducharme. He's earned a, he's earned an extension, obviously. And Luke Richardson seems to me after this performance is probably going to get poached by another team. I mean, I'm trying to think of any uh, current availabilities that he could end up getting poached into. And I'm, I'm assuming that he'll probably end up being maybe a mid-season replacement next year. I think that's probably a very likely scenario. But I just I wanted to ask because I've seen, <laughs> you know, Canadian uh, media folks uh, kind of asking the question, hey, wait a minute, is Luke Richardson the next big thing? Who are we going to make? I just wanted you to get have a chance to make a hot take. Um, we will move on from that, however, because we have to ask you about everybody, every Blackhawks fan's favorite <laughs> Canadian player, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because there is a real player we love. I have to ask you about Corey Perry. 
The dude, <laughs> basically back from the hockey dead, has nine points in the playoffs. I know that he is basically reviled around the league as an Oscar the Grouch who probably smells worse than Oscar the Grouch does. <laughs> what has Corey Perry's biggest impact been on this team? And what has the experience been like of having Corey Perry uh, donning the uh, Canadian sweater? <laughs> so he was a last minute addition at league minimum, which I didn't realize at the time. But for the past two years, the Anaheim Ducks have been paying Corey Perry six and a half million dollars to not play for them. Uh, <laughs> to play for other people. That's so true. he obviously didn't need the money. And when he first signed on, I said that I will never cheer for Corey Perry on this team. And that's become kind of a meme on our hockey internet and on our podcast, because I know that as soon as I admit that I like Corey Perry, he's going to elbow somebody in the yep. head It'll or happen. chop off their arm or slew foot them or you know, slash them or something like that. So I'm holding out. I'm the lone holdout in, in Montreal, I believe. Uh, but it is kind of fun to have a villain on your team. It's been a while that we, a villain who at this, to this point, thankfully, has not intentionally injured anybody. He has unintentionally injured somebody and he obviously felt terrible about that. Oh, he was very shaken up by brutal. it. Brutal, yes, yeah. And he, there's something about, watching him play for the Montreal Canadiens. He was obviously there to be on the taxi squad. He was there as a depth addition. He was there to be a veteran presence. And the Canadians messed up their cap situation and used up too many, used, up, used him too many times to the point where they couldn't send him back down. So they had no choice but to play him. And one thing's been extremely evident is that, and I did not expect this from a guy like Corey Perry, is that he absolutely loves his teammates. He mm. loves his teammates. He's taken the young guys under his wing like they're his children. And he's, he's the guy on the team that goes and gets the puck when, you know, when you get a shutout or when you score the game-winning goal or whatever it is, or your first goal. He's that guy. And he just loves being part of his team. And, and there was a, you know, when the Canadians went down to – uh, 3-1 to the Toronto Maple Leafs. I keep bringing that up because I want people never to forget that the Leafs blew a 3-1 series lead to my Montreal Canadiens. Okay, so wait a minute. You're, you're <laughs> allowed to keep bringing that up. Am I allowed to message you on Twitter occasionally going, what does this Canadians run mean for the Toronto Maple Leafs? Like, am I allowed <laughs> to just ask you that question at every available <laughs> interval then? Well, a friend of both of ours, Ryan Hackett himself, uh, <laughs> in game six, I, he, he messaged me for a wellness check. And he said, he said, I said I was dying. Mm. That's what I said. And he was like, how does this affect the Toronto Maple Leafs? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let me, let me just we, get we've back We've encapsulated uh, hockey media in Canada very well in the last very five well. seconds. <laughs> And so when they went down, so there was a meeting and the veteran guys, so Shea Weber, Corey Perry, Eric Stahl, who was also a inexplicably a Montreal Canadian. <laughs> and uh, they, they had a meeting with the team and they said, you know, we believe in each other. We're going to play for each other. They had like this whole conversation and they brought some confidence into the room and they talked about how it's not going to be easy and so not to give up. And to their credit, the Canadians hung on for game five they hung on for game six and then they definitively won game seven in that series so his mm -hmm. presence has been really welcome on the team they love him he loves them uh i i think that he's been a very impactful player for the montreal Canadiens for very little money uh he's playing on the fourth line with eric stahl and yoel armia as we discussed and we're hoping jake evans can step in for yoel armia yep. but uh 
they have provided offense. They've provided, you know, they've eaten up garbage minutes that you need. They've provided a net front presence to use the hockey cliche. And he's also been a pest. I I mean, I didn't notice this at the time, but uh, after he got slashed in the face and a penalty wasn't called, it was, uh, I want to say it was Alec Martinez or either Petrangelo or Martinez. I I can't even remember. There were so many missed calls. (laughs) One of them uh, broke his face. He like skated by the guy the next game and just casually like, grabbed his stick and tossed it on the other side of the ice as he was skating by him. And I was like, you know, you, you can take Corey Perry out of the, out of the intentional injury, but you can't take the actual pest out of him. It is a joy to watch how much fun he's having. It's a joy to watch how much fun all of them are having, to be honest. Like, and, and I know you're going to ask me about someone next, so I'll, I'll just wait for that. Well, I'm actually going to pull a fast one on you, and I'm going to ask you because you brought up Armia, who is potentially going to miss game one because he's on the COVID list again. You had mentioned earlier a Canadians player had tested positive for COVID earlier this year. That was him. And now he's back on the COVID list, did not travel with the team to Tampa Bay. How big of a loss is that in terms, and especially with how well he's played with Eric Stahl and Corey Perry? I think it's a chemistry thing, to be honest, because Jake Evans, who's expected to replace him, is a very serviceable player. He's a fantastic player defensively. He's able to jump in on the offense. We praised Jake Evans so much this past season, even when the entire team was having a bad game. Often he was playing a really good game. And I do believe that I've said this so many times, so stop me if you've heard this one. Uh, There is such a thing as a good caliber bottom six player. You know, Mm. it used to be you know, 10, 20 years ago, the bottom six was just a bunch of guys who were able to skate and hold a stick, right? There's replacement players. That's where your goon played and all of that. I think that the NHL has evolved to such a point where a good caliber bottom, bottom six can be the difference when they talk about playoff depth, you know, when, when, when the penguins won back to back a couple of years ago, that kind of like your bottom six has to be a good bottom six. It can't just be any random guy. It has to have quality to it and Jake Evans and Joel Armia are both or Yoel Armia to pronounce it correctly are both that kind of guy so the the thing the the x factor there is that normally Jake Evans is a center he has played on the wing before Yoel Armia is not he's a winger he's straight up a winger and Eric Stahl plays center on that line and they haven't moved Eric Stahl even when that line was struggling in the regular season he's always going to be that center Mm -hmm. so it's going to be a matter of if Jake Evans is able to find chemistry on that line because all the other lines are clicking so well that you wouldn't want to put him somewhere else uh so I I think that it's going to be an adjustment for all of them but I do hope that the chemistry happens quickly enough that they're able to do what they were able to do against all these other teams before. Well, certainly. And obviously the chemistry has to click quickly. It's a best of seven series. And at the end, somebody gets a big, bright, shiny silver chalice. So we're going to get into that. I've got a couple of big uh, picture questions to wrap this thing up with here in a moment, but we have to have one more player question because we're, all, we're just going to all think about it. All Blackhawk fans right now just have the name Philip Dano on our minds because we basically got rid of him for two dudes, I think played a combined 32 games for the Blackhawks, if I remember correctly. And obviously Dano has, you know, all he's done is go out and probably make himself a five or a $6 million contract in the off season and just been a hugely effective player in a lot of different areas. So go ahead, tell us all about what makes Philip Dano so freaking awesome and why Blackhawk fans should be so freaking sad. <laughs> well, as a fleecing, it was, uh, <sighs> Philip Dano is a guy. Oh, on please, please say his name again. 
Philippe Dano. Oh, yes. I love it. <laughs> he is a, he is an often overlooked guy in Montreal. We have been mostly tongue in cheek, uh, mounting a Philippe Dano for Selkie campaign for the last couple of years, because he's a, an underrated two way player, or he has been mm-hmm. up until this point. Uh, we, you know, we saw what he was able to do. And I think, you know, because the Canadians were not performing well as a team, he never got noticed. I saw that there were some, uh, some third place votes for him this year. He came sixth in Selkie voting, even though he had a bad year. So I feel like all the hype from the last couple of years is finally catching up. And let me tell you something. I think that based on this playoff run, whatever contract he gets, which is now going to be at least $6 million a yeah, year. I told you. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's for Montreal. I, I'm, I'm very willing to pay to overpay this guy now. I, I wasn't at the beginning of the regular season because he was struggling. Even though he had a terrible regular season, he had this amazing playoff run. So even if he's like mediocre in the regular season next year, you know, you know, he's going to get the Selkie based on this playoff run, isn't yep. he? Uh, yeah. Well, wait, you're <laughs> telling me that the Selkie Trophy is a reputation award. Why, I <laughs> never, Laura, I've never Shocking, heard Shocking, right? I, Shocking. I, I don't even know how to proceed from here. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to go to my notes and I'm just going to basically read it verbatim. I think we need to go with a couple of big picture questions uh, to kind of put a bow on this and to kind of set the stage for the Stanley Cup final. And so I need you to fill in a blank. The Montreal Canadiens will become the first Canadian team in 28 years to hoist the Stanley Cup if blank. They're able to shut down Tampa Bay's power play. Mm. Yeah, that is, uh, as, as somebody who's rooting for the Carolina Hurricanes, I know uh, all about what that power play can do. <laughs> Man, that was a difficult series to watch, just watching the Hurricanes repeatedly shoot themselves in the foot and the Tampa Bay Lightning to continue giving them ammunition to do it. It was quite amazing. Um, and then one final question here. Again, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I know you said you've had a very busy day. I know you've depleted your flattery uh, reserves and <laughs> saying that, you know, this is your favorite interview of the day, yada, yada. I, I get all of it. Is there an area that you concern yourself with about the Canadians going into this series? And do you think they can overcome whatever that weakness is and uh, finish this underdog story off and to win that Stanley Cup? I think Tampa Bay has more skill, just pure skill up and down the lineup. They have more of it. Their top defenseman is Victor freaking Hedman. Our top defenseman is held together with a a hand brace. Um, So I think that my area of concern really is just how, how many waves of talent they have coming at you. So it's not just about shutting down the power play. Obviously it's about being able to counter that depth. Uh, You know, Philippe Deneau is going to be so important, but the rest of the team playing defensively is going to be so important as well. And Carey Price obviously needs to come up big. I I don't really have doubts as to Carey Price coming up big. I also, even though Vasilevsky has, is basically a brick wall. I don't have too much, uh, too much, worry on that front because I think the Canadians will be able to generate offense against him. The question is, <laughs> the question is if it's going to be enough, you know, like if, if Cole Caulfield scores only one goal in a game and Carey Price is going to have to be perfect. So I think it's like, if they're able to get to the front of the net, they will be able to score some goals. It's just that they have to keep Tampa low scoring in order to have a shot. 
Uh, sorry, you probably witnessed uh, my cat stabbing me in the back with his claws. That wasn't very fun. But it is a great way to end the interview, I suppose. Me just uh, <laughs> grimacing and hoping that it'd be Monday soon so we can uh, watch some Canadians hockey. Laura, once again, it was fantastic talking to you. Always a pleasure, no matter what the subject is. We need to eventually get to a baseball game. Every time we've, I've gone on a baseball trip and I've said, hey, you want to swing down to the Northeast, there's always been something going on. But that needs to happen soon. Absolutely. I, I do think that we should put it on like a to-do list and we should ab- actually do it. And I've got some ideas for, for, for ballparks I, I want to visit. So thank Ooh. you so much for having me on. I know I rambled a lot. I, I went on and on, but you asked me about this team. I have fallen so in love with this playoff <laughs> run that I can't say enough good things about them. And, and I really, really appreciate you guys having me on and I'm sorry that I missed Jay, but hopefully next time. Well, you know what? He just decided that, you know, being a good father was uh, slightly more important. <laughs> so I suppose that I'll kind of, I'll let this one slide. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Once again, you can check her out on the Lockdown Canadians podcast. She does have a day job that she doesn't talk about much on the active stick uh, website, but check out her writing, check out her podcast and you won't regret it. Game one of the Stanley Cup final tomorrow night, Canadians and Lightning. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. We'll talk to you again uh, soon. Jay and I will be recording a podcast and bringing you our blithering stupidity, and it'll be a great antidote to what we just did here. So thank you again for listening, and have a great night, everybody. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Fry the Coop, Triple Threat Sports, and by the Sins in Law Group. I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.